Section 32 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 3. Edited by Charles F. Horn, Rosita Johnson, and John Rudd. Section 32. First Nicene Council. Rise and Decline of Arianism, A.D. 325, by Arthur Penryn Stanley. The delegates to the council assembled in the first instance in one of the chief buildings of Nicaea, apparently for the purpose of a thanksgiving and a religious reunion. Whether it was an actual church may be questioned. Christians, no doubt, there had been in Bithynia for some generations. Already in the second century Pliny had found them, in such numbers, that the temples were deserted and the sacrifices neglected. But it would seem that on this occasion a secular building was fitted up as a temporary house of prayer. At least, the traditional account of the place, where their concluding prayers were held, exactly agrees with Strabo's account of the ancient gymnasium of Nicaea. It was a large building, shaped like a basilica, with an abscess at one end, planted in the centre of the town, and thus commanding down each of the four streets a view of the four gates, and therefore called Mesomphalos, the navel of the city. Whether, however, this edifice actually was a church or not, its use as such on this occasion served as a precedent for most of the later councils. From the time of the Council of Chalcedon, they have usually been held within the walls of churches. But for this, the first council, the church, so far as it was a church, was only used as the beginning and the end. After these thanksgivings were over, the members of the assembly must have been collected according to the divisions which shall now be described. The group, which above the rest, attracts our attention is the deputation from the Church of Egypt. Shrill above all other voices, vehement above all other disputants, brandishing their arguments, as it was described by one who knew them well, like spears, against those who sate under the same roof and ate of the same table as themselves, were the combatants from Alexandria, who had brought to its present pass the question which the council was called to decide foremost in the group on dignity though not in importance or in energy was the aged alexander whose imprudent sermon had provoked the quarrel and whose subsequent vacillation had encouraged it he was the bishop not indeed of the first but of the most learned see of christendom he was known by a title which he alone officially bore in that assembly he was the pope the pope of rome was a phrase which had not yet emerged in history. But Pope of Alexandria was a well-known dignity. Papa, that strange and universal mixture of familiar endearment and of reverential awe, extended in a general sense to all Greek presbyters and all Latin bishops, was the special address which, long before the name of patriarch or of archbishop, was given to the head of the Alexandrian church. In the patriarchal treasury at Moscow, 
is a very ancient scarf or omophorion said to have been given by the bishop of nicaea in the seventeenth century to the tsar alexis and to have been left to the church of nicaea by alexander of alexandria it is white and is rudely worked with a representation of the ascension possibly an allusion to the first sunday of their meeting this relic true or false is the nearest approach we can now make to the bodily presence of the old theologian the shadow of death is already upon him in a few months he will be beyond the reach of controversy but close beside the pope alexander is a small insignificant young man of hardly twenty-five years of age of lively manners and speech and of bright serene countenance though he is but the deacon the chief deacon or archdeacon of alexander he has closely riveted the attention of the assembly by the vehemence of his arguments he is already taking the words out of the bishop's mouth and briefly acting in reality the part he had before as a child acted in name and that in a few months he will be called to act both in name and in reality in some of the conventional pictures at the council his humble rank as a deacon does not allow of his appearance but his activity and prominence behind the scenes made enemies for him there who will never leave him through life any one who had read his passionate invectives afterward may form some notion of what he was when in the thick of his useful battles that small insignificant deacon is the great athanasius next after the pope and deacon of alexandria we must turn to one of its most important presbyters the parish priest of its principal church which bore the name of Bocolis, and marked the first beginnings of what we should call a parochial system in appearance he is the very opposite of athanasius he is sixty years of age very tall and thin and apparently unable to support his stature he has an odd way of contorting and twisting himself which his enemies compare to the wrigglings of a snake he would be handsome but for the emaciation and deadly pallor of his face and a downcast look imparted by a weakness of eyesight at times his veins throb and swell and his limbs tremble as if suffering from some violent internal complaint the same perhaps that will terminate one day in his sudden and frightful death there is a wild look about him which at first sight is startling his dress and demeanour are those of a rigid ascetic he wears a long coat with short sleeves and a scarf of only half size such as was the mark of an austere life and his hair hangs in a tangled mass over his head he is usually silent but at times breaks out into fierce excitement such as will give the impression of madness yet with all this there are a sweetness in his voice and a winning earnest manner which fascinates those who come across him among the religious ladies of alexandria he is said to have had from the first a following of not less than seven hundred this strange captivating moonstruck giant is the heretic arius or as his adversaries called him the madman of arras or mars close beside him was a group of his countrymen of whom we know little except 
their fidelity to him through good report and evil saras like himself a presbyter from the libyan province oizoius a deacon of egypt achillas a reader theonus bishop of marmarica in the Cyrenaica, and secundus bishop of ptolemais in the delta these were the most remarkable deputies from the church of alexandria but from the interior of egypt came characters of quite another stamp not greeks nor greasyized egyptians but genuine copts speaking the greek language not at all or with great difficulty living half or the whole of their lives in the desert their very names taken from the heathen gods of the times of the ancient pharaohs one was potamon bishop of heracleopolis far up the nile the other paphnutius bishop of the upper thebaide both are famous for the austerity of their lives potamon that is dedicated to ammon had himself visited the hermit antony paphnutius that is dedicated to his god had been brought up in a hermitage both too had suffered in the persecutions each presented the frightful spectacle of the right eye dug out with iron paphnutius besides came limping on one leg his left having been hamstrung next in importance must be reckoned the bishop of syria and of the interior of asia or as they are sometimes called in the later councils the eastern bishops as distinguished from the church of egypt then as afterward there was a rivalry between those branches of oriental christendom each from long neighborhood knowing each yet each tending in an opposite direction till after the council of chalcedon a community of heresy drew them together again here as in egypt we find two classes of representatives scholars from the more civilized cities of syria wild ascetics from the remoter east the first in dignity was the orthodox oestathius who either was or was on the point of being made bishop of the capital of syria the metropolis of the eastern church antioch then called the city of god he had suffered in heathen persecutions and was destined to suffer in christian persecutions also but he was chiefly known for his learning and eloquence which was distinguished by an antique simplicity of life one work alone has come down to us on the witch of endor next in rank and far more illustrious was his chief suffragan the metropolitan of palestine the bishop of caesarea oisebius we honour him as the father of ecclesiastical history as the chief depository of the traditions which connect the fourth with the first century but in the bishops of nicaea his presence awakened feelings of a very different kind he alone of the eastern prelates could tell what was in the mind of the emperor he was the clerk of the imperial closet he was the interpreter the chaplain the confessor of constantine and yet he was on the wrong side too especially we may be sure of the egyptian church were on the watch for any slip that he might make athanasius whatever may have been the opinions of later times respecting the doctrines of oisebius was convinced that he was at heart an arian potamon of the one eye had known him formerly in the days of persecution and was ready 
with that most fatal taunt, which on a later occasion he threw out against him, that while he had thus suffered for the cause of Christ, Osebius had escaped by sacrificing to an idol. If Isebius was suspected of Arianism, he was supported by most of the suffragan bishops in Palestine, of whom Paulinus of Tyre and Patrophilus of Besthan, Scytopolis, were the most remarkable. One, however, a champion of orthodoxy, was distinguished not in himself, but for the see which he occupied, once the highest in Christendom, in a few years about to claim something of its former grandeur, but at the time of the council known only as a second-rate Syro-Roman city. Macarius, Bishop of Aelia Capitolina, that is, Jerusalem. From Neo-Caesarea, a border fortress on the Euphrates, came its confessor Bishop Paul, who, like Paphnutius and Potamon, had suffered in the persecutions, but more recently under Licinius. His hands were paralyzed by the scorching of the muscles of all the fingers with red-hot iron. Along with him were the orthodox representatives of four famous churches, who, according to the Armenian tradition, traveled in company. Their leader was the marvel, the Moses, as he was termed, of Mesopotamia, James, or Jacob, bishop of Nisibis. He had lived for years as a hermit on the mountains, in the forests during the summer, in caverns during the winter, browsing on roots and leaves, like a wild beast, and like a wild beast clothed in a rough goat-hair cloak. This dress and manner of life, even after he became bishop, he never laid aside, and the mysterious awe which his presence inspired was increased by the stories of miraculous powers which, we are told, he exercised in a manner as humane and playful as it was grotesque, as when he turned the washerwoman's hair white, detected the impostor who pretended to be dead, and raised an army of gnats against the Persians. His fame as a theologian rests on disputed writings. The second was Ait Alaha, the brought of God, like the Greek Theophorus, who had just occupied the sea of Edessa, and finished the building of the cemetery of his cathedral. The third was Aristaces, said to be the cousin of Jacob of Bisibis and son of Gregory the Illuminator, founder of the Armenian Church. He represented both his father and the bishop Antiridates, the king of Armenia, the bishop and king having received a special invitation from Constantine, and sent their written professions of faith by the hands of Aristaces. The fourth, came from beyond the frontier, the sole representative of the more distant east, John the Persian, who added to his name the more sounding title, here appearing for the first time, but revived in our own days as the designation of our own bishops of Calcutta, Metropolitan of India. A curious tradition related that this band, including eleven other names from the remote east, were the only numbers of the Nicene Council who had not sustained some bodily mutilation or injury. As this little band advanced westward, they encountered a remarkable personage, who stands at the head of the next group which we meet, the prelates of Asia Minor and Greece. This was Leontius of Caesarea and Cappadocia, 
From his hands, it was said, Gregory of Armenia had received ordination, and from his successors in the See of Caesarea had desired that every succeeding bishop of Armenia should receive ordination likewise. For this reason, it may be, Aristeses and his company sought them out. They found Leontius already on his journey, and they overtook him at a critical moment. He was on the point of baptizing another Gregory, father of a much more celebrated Gregory, the future bishop of Nasianzen. A light, it was believed, shone from the water, which was only discerned by the sacred travellers. Leontius was claimed by the Arians, but still more decidedly by the Orthodox. Others of the same side are usually named as from the same region, among them Hypatius of Gangra, whose end we shall witness at the close of these events, and Hermogenes the deacon, afterwards bishop of Caesarea, who acted as secretary to the council. Eusebius of Nicomedia, afterward of Constantinople, Theognis of Nicaea, Marys of Chalcedon, and Menomphatus of Ephesus, were among the most resolute defenders of Arius. It is curious to reflect that they represent the four sees of the four orthodox councils of the church. The three last named soon vanish away from history, but Eusebius of Nicomedia, friend, namesake, perhaps even brother of the bishop of Caesarea, was a personage of high importance, both then and afterwards. As Athanasius was called the Great by the Orthodox, so was Eusebius by the Arians. Even miracles were ascribed to him. Originally bishop of Beiruth, Berutus, he had been translated to the See of Nicomedia, then the capital of the Eastern Empire. He had been a favorite of the emperor's rival Licinius, and had thus become intimate with Constantia, the emperor's sister, the wife, now the widow of Licinius. Through her, and through his own distant relationship with the imperial family, he kept a hold on the court, which he never lost, even to the moment when he stood by the dying bed of the emperor, years afterward, and received him into the church. We must not be too hard on the Christianity of Eusebius, if we wish to indicate the baptism of Constantine. Not far from the great prelate of the capital of the East would be the representative of what was now a small Greek town, but in five years from that time would supersede altogether the glories of Nicomedia. Metrophanes, bishop of Byzantium, was detained by old age and sickness, but Alexander, his presbyter, himself seventy years of age, was there with a little secretary of the name of Paul, not more than twelve years old, one of the readers and collectors of the Byzantine church. Alexander had already corresponded with his namesake on the Arian controversy, and was apparently attached firmly to the orthodox side. Besides their more regular champions, the Orthodox party of Greece and Asia Minor had a few very eccentric allies. One was Accessius the Novatian, the Puritan, summoned by Constantine from Byzantium with Alexander, from the deep respect entertained by the emperor for his ascetic character. He was attended by a boy, Auxanon, 
who lived to a great age afterward as a presbyter in the same sect. This child was then living with a hermit, Aetikianus, on the heights of the neighboring mountain of the Bithynian Olympus, and he descended from these solitudes to attend upon Assisius. From him we have obtained some of the most curious details of the council. Marcellus, bishop of Ancyra, was among the bishops, the fiercest opponent of Arius, and when the active deacon of Alexandria was not present, seems to have borne the brunt of the arguments. Yet if we may judge from his subsequent history, Athanasius could never have been quite at ease in leaving the cause in his hands. He was one of those awkward theologians who never could attack Arianism without falling into Sabellianism, and in later life he was twice deposed from his see for heresy, once excommunicated by Athanasius himself, and in the present form of the Nicene Creed, one clause, that which asserts that the kingdom of Christ shall have no end, is said to have been expressly aimed at his exaggerated language. And now come two, who in the common pictures of the council always appear together, of whom the one probably left the deepest impression on his contemporaries, and the other, if he were present at all, on the subsequent traditions of the council. From the island of Cyprus there arrived the simple shepherd Spiridion, a shepherd both before and after his elevation to the episcopate. Strange stories were told by his fellow islanders to the historian Socrates of the thieves who were miraculously caught in attempting to steal his sheep, and of Spiridion's good-humoured reply when he found them in the morning, and gave them a ram that they might not have sat up all night for nothing. Another tale, exactly similar to the fantastic Mussulman legends which hand about stories of Jerusalem, told how he had gained an answer from his dead daughter Irene to tell where a certain deposit was hidden. Two less marvellous but more instructive stories bring out the simplicity of his character. He rebuked a celebrated preacher at Cyprus for altering, in a quotation from the Gospels, the homely word for bed into couch. What? Are you better than he who said bed, that you are ashamed to use his words? On occasion of a wayworn traveller coming to him in Lent, finding no other food in the house, he presented him with salted pork, and when the stranger declined, saying that he could not, as a Christian, break his fast. So much the less reason, he said, have you for scruple? To the pure, all things are pure. A characteristic legend attaches to the account of his journey to the council. It was his usual practice to travel on foot, but on this occasion the length of the journey, as well as the dignity of his office, induced him to ride, in company with his deacon, on two mules, a white and a chestnut. One night at his arrival at a caravan sari, where a cavalcade of orthodox bishops were already assembled, the mules were turned out to pasture, while he retired to his devotions. The bishops had conceived an alarm, lest the cause of orthodoxy should suffer in the council, by the ignorance or awkwardness of the shepherd of Cyprus, 
when opposed to the subtleties of the Alexandrian heretic. Accordingly, taking advantage of his encounter, they determined to throw a decisive impediment in his way. They cut off the heads of his two mules, and then, as is the custom in oriental travelling, started on their journey before sunrise. Spiridion also rose, but was met by his terrified deacon, announcing the unexpected disaster. On arriving at the spot, the saint bade the deacon to attach the heads to the dead bodies. He did so, and at a sign from the bishop, the two mules with their restored heads shook themselves, as if from a deep sleep, and started to their feet. Spiridion and the deacon mounted, and soon overtook the travellers. As the day broke, the prelates and the deacon were like astonished at seeing that he, performing the annexation in the dark and in haste, had fixed the heads on the wrong shoulders, so that the white mule had now a chestnut head, and the chestnut mule had the head of its white companion. Thus the miracle was doubly attested, the bishops doubly discomfited, and the simplicity of Spiridion doubly exemplified. Many more stories might be told of him, but to use the words of an ancient writer who has related some of them, from the claws you can make out the lion. Of all the Nicene fathers it may yet be said that in a certain curious sense he is the only one who has survived the decay of time. After resting for many years in his native Cyprus, his body was transferred to Constantinople, where it remained till a short time before the fall of the empire. It was thence conveyed to Corfu, where it is still preserved. Hence, by a strange resuscitation of fame, he has become the patron saint, one might almost say the divinity of the Ionian Islands. Twice a year, in solemn procession, he is carried around the streets of Corfu. Hundreds of Corfuids bear his name, now abridged into the familiar diminutive of Spiro. The superstitious veneration entertained for the old saint is a constant source of quarrel between the English residents and the native Ionians. But the historian may be pardoned for gazing with a momentary interest on the dead hands, now black and withered, that subscribed the creed of Nicaea. Still more famous, and still more apocryphal, at least in his attendance at Nicaea, is Nicholas, Bishop of Myra. Not mentioned by a single ancient historian, he yet figures in the traditional pictures of the council as the foremost figure of all. Type as he is of universal benevolence to sailors, to thieves, to the victims of thieves, to children, known by his broad red face and flowing white hair, the traditions of the East always represent him as standing in the midst of the assembly, and suddenly roused by righteous indignation to assail the heretic Arius with a tremendous box on the ear. One more group of deputies closes the arrivals. The Nicene Council was a council of the Eastern Church, and Eastern seemingly were at least 310 of the 318 bishops. But the West was not entirely unrepresented. Nicasius from France, Marcus from Calabria, Capito from Sicily, Aistorgius from Milan, 
where a venerable church is still de dedicated to his memory, Domnus of Stridon in Pannonia, were the less conspicuous deputies of the western provinces. But there were five men whose presence must have been full of interest to their eastern brethren. Corresponding to John the Persian from the extreme east was the Theophilus the Goth from the extreme north. His light complexion doubtless made a marked contrast with the tawny hue and dark hair of almost all the rest. They rejoiced to think that he, they had a genuine Scythian among them. From all future generations of his Teutonic countrymen, he may claim attention as the predecessor and teacher of Ulfilas, the great missionary of the Gothic nation. Out of the province of northern Africa, the earliest cradle of the Latin church, came Cassilan, bishop of Carthage. A few years ago he had himself been convened before the two western councils of the Lateran and of Arles, and had there been acquitted of the charges brought against him by the Donatists. If any of the distant Orientals had hoped to catch a sight of the bishop of the imperial city, they were doomed to disappointment. Doubtless had he been there, his position as prelate of the capital would have been, if not first, at least among the first. But Sylvester was now far advanced in years, and in his place came the two presbyters, who, according to the arrangement laid down by the emperor, would have accompanied him had he been able to make the journey. In this simple deputation later writers have seen, and perhaps by a gradual process the connection might be traced, the first germ of legati alla terra. But it must have been a very far-seeing eye, which, in Victor and Vincentius, the two unknown elders, representing their sick old bishop, could have detected the predecessors of Pandulf or of Wolsey. With them, however, was a man who, though now long forgotten, was then an object of deeper interest to Christendom than any bishop of Rome could at that time have been. It was the world-renowned Spaniard, as he is called by Eusebius, the magician from Spain, as he is called by Zosimus, Hosius, bishop of Cordova. He was the representative of the westernmost of European churches, but, as Eusebius of Caesarea, was the chief counsellor of the emperor in the Greek church, so was Hosius in the Latin, as shown in the darkest and most mysterious crisis of Constantine's life. It was probably by degrees that these different arrivals took place, and the lapse of two or three weeks must be supposed for the preparatory arrangements before the council was formally opened. This interval was occupied by eager discussions on the questions likely to be debated. The first assemblage had been, as we have seen, within the walls of a public building, but the other preliminary meetings were held, as was natural, in the streets or colonnades in the open air. The novelty of the occasion had collected many strangers to the spot. Laymen, philosophers, heathen, as well as Christians, might be seen joining in the arguments on either side, orthodox as well as heretical. There were also discussions among the orthodox themselves as to the principle 
on which the debate should be conducted. The enumeration of the characters just given shows that there were two very different elements in the assembly, such indeed as will always constitute the main difficulty in making any general statements of theology, which shall be satisfactory at once to the few and to the many. A large number, perhaps the majority, consisted of rough, simple, almost illiterate men, like Spiridion the shepherd, Potamon the hermit, Assisius the Puritan, who held their faith earnestly and sincerely, but without conscious knowledge of the grounds on which they maintained it, incapable of arguing themselves, or of entering into the argument of their opponents. These men, when suddenly brought into collision with the acutest and most learned disputant of the age, naturally took up the position that the safest course was to hold by what they had been handed down, without any further inquiry or explanation. A story, somewhat variously told, is related of an encounter of one of these simple characters with the more philosophical combatants, which, in whatever way it be taken, well illustrates the mixed character of the council, and the choice of the courses open before it. As Socrates describes the incident, the disputes were running so high, from the mere pleasure of argument, that there seemed likely to be no end to the controversy, when suddenly a simple-minded layman, who by his sightless eye or limping leg bore witness of his zeal for the Christian faith, stepped among them and abruptly said, Christ and the apostles left us not a system of logic, nor a vain deceit, but a naked truth to be guided by faith and good works. There has, says Bishop K. in recording the story, been hardly any age of the church in which its members have not required to be reminded of this lesson. On the present occasion, the bystanders, at least for the moment, were struck by its happy application. The disputants, after hearing this plain word of truth, took their differences more good-humouredly, and the hubbub of controversy subsided. The tradition grew in later times into the form which it bears in all the pictures of the council, and which is commemorated in the services of the Greek church. Aware of his incapacity of argument, he took a brick and said, You deny that three can be one. Look at this. It is one, and yet it is composed of the three elements of fire, earth, and water. As he spoke, the brick resolved itself into its component parts. The fire flew upward, the clay remained in his hand, and the water fell to the ground. The philosopher, or, according to some accounts, Arius himself, was so confounded as to declare himself converted on the spot. These tales represent probably the feeling of a large portion of the council, the sound, unprofessional, untheological, lay element, which lay at the basis of all their weakness and their strength. The historian Socrates is very anxious to prove that the assembly was not entirely composed of men of this kind, and he points triumphantly to the presence of such men as Eusebius of Caesarea. No proof was necessary. The subsequent history of the council itself is a sufficient indication that however small a minority might be, the dialections and the theologians, 
yet they constitute the life and movement of the whole. Socrates dwells with evident pleasure on the circumstance that the ultimate decisions were only made after long inquiry, and that everything was stirred to the bottom. We may wish, with Bishop Jeremy Taylor and Bishop Kay, that it had been otherwise. But there is a point of view in which we may fully sympathize with the course that was taken. All the elements which go to make up the interest of theology were involved. Love of free inquiry, desire of precision in philosophical statements, research into Christian antiquity, comparison of the texts of scripture one with another. Traditional and episcopal authority was regarded as insufficient for the establishment of the faith. The well-known clause of the twenty-first article does but express the principle of the Nicene Fathers themselves. Things ordained by them, as necessary for salvation, have neither strength nor authority, unless it may be declared that they are taken out of Holy Scripture. The battle was fought and won by quotations, not from tradition, but from the Old and New Testaments. The overruling sentiment was that, even ancient opinions were not to be received without sifting and inquiry. The chief combatant and champion of the faith was not the bishop of Antioch or of Rome, nor the pope of Alexandria, but the deacon Athanasius. The eager discussions of Nicaea present the first grand precedent for the duty of private judgment and the free, unrestrained exercise of biblical and historical criticism. End of section 32